let's get into the Bible. This has been so fun going through Daniel. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Um, and last week, we uh, talked about chapter 9 and, uh, and Daniel, and the, was that penitent prayer. And if you missed that, I encourage you to go back onto our website, funchurch.com, and listen to the message of that and read the penitent prayer actually starting in the beginning of chapter 9. Because you have a hard time understanding the second part that we're going to talk about today if you really don't understand why uh, God gave Daniel this vision. And it was a response to an answer to Daniel's penitent prayer. And I don't have time to preach two sermons today, and you don't want me to, so go back and listen to it and also read that portion of it. But, um, but that's what will be uh, coming today. Just know that uh, Daniel, he prayed. And he said, God, I don't want to mess up. Like, I don't want people to mess up. I know we're going to go back to Israel. We're going to have the, the temple and all this again. We want to make sure that you forgive us and that we, you change us so we don't end up in exile again and all this. And then God responds. And he tells him, Daniel, you got 70 weeks till Sunday. Chill. It's going to be okay. And that's what we'll be talking about today. Now, this vision is a, uh, uh, it's a vision of, it's basically a countdown uh, to when God is going to bring ultimate victory over sin. In response to Daniel saying, Lord, forgive us sin and take this away from us. And God tells him, there's going to be a countdown and sin will be finished. What an answer. And it also talks about, and I think it's important for us to realize in this chapter, that it talks about that the security or the, or the, the surety of, of this, the end of sin, has to do a whole lot more with God's faithfulness than ours. Isn't that comforting? And so we'll get to that now. Hebrews 10.23, I think, is an important passage for us to memorize as we go into this because it talks about, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. The hope we profess, I'm saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, right? He is the one who fulfilled the prophecy. That's where my security is in. And he talks about today that this was God's plan all along. And it's important for us in a day like today when we're told to have faith in a lot of things, right? And sometimes to challenge, like, oh, can we really trust God? <laughs> it's important for us to realize that, no, this is the, our security rests in God's faithfulness. So let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. I love that, unswervingly. Isn't that awesome? You ever feel like you're swervy in your faith? <laughs> right? And what a reminder that uh, how cool it is that uh, we can trust God. And you'll be amazed today as how we can. Now, if you have your Bibles, let's just get to it. You want to turn it to Daniel chapter 9. It's on page 621 if you have one of our Bibles. If uh, you forgot your Bible today, you don't have one, we've got lots of them in the little bookshelf back there. If you need a Bible or want a new one, just keep it our gift to you. Now, as you're turning there, just realize that this is, without question, one of the most difficult chapters in all of Scripture, right? I'm not going to give you a full theological dissertation on all of this, okay? There are just as many interpretations of this as I think there are words in this chapter, okay? So you can go to different uh, Bible teachers that are all very good Christians and might come to a little, you know, little bit different on the details, but we all end up in the same place. In light of some of these difficulties, I think something that is important for us to understand is we need to approach this passage with humility and not just dogmatically, okay? That uh, realize that in this room, there might be a little bit differing, you know, differing under, uh, interpretations on some of the details. That's okay, because he who promised is faithful, right? <laughs> and this is important for us to look at and to say, try to understand Scripture, but 
understand that there's some humility that's necessary. Even Daniel himself uh, had some questions. So we may too. Also, uh, it's, uh, it's important that we also realize that uh, when we study anything in Scripture, especially difficult things, we always want to take the simple things in Scripture to help us understand the more difficult things. That's just, that makes sense, right? You never want to draw an, a conclusion in Scripture that contradicts other very clear teachings in Scripture because God is not double-minded. Does that make sense? Okay, so with some humility and with understanding that if we, we look at this and we, in light of everything else in context and with the rest of Scripture, let's dig in. Right? So the first thing that we get to is Daniel's praying, and in verse 20, Gabriel shows up again. All right, verse uh, 20, it says, While I was speaking and praying, right, as he was still in the midst of his prayer and confessing sins, the people of Israel, and making requests to the Lord my God on, for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer... Gabriel, the man I'd seen earlier in a vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. Isn't that awesome? But Daniel's still, he's still praying to God. Lord, you've got to forgive us. And God sends his very best. Now, those of you who remember Gabriel, he was an archangel. He was the same guy that, uh, that, that God sends to Zechariah and to Mary, uh, talking about their miraculous birth. I mean, this is an important angel, so this is, a, this is a big deal. And God dispatches Gabriel right away. Daniel starts praying a penitent prayer, and God responds while he's still praying. He didn't even have to say amen yet. God already knows and sends out the answer, which is so cool. Now, it had been 14 years since Daniel saw Gabriel before. But I think, imagine that he recognized him right away. It's a face you probably won't forget. So he gets that. And Gabriel comes, and Gabriel says, I'm here to make sure that you, uh, you're going to have skill to understand this vision that you're going to have. Okay? So that's helpful. God's going to give him a vision, and he's going to give him a guy to say, I'm going to help you kind of get it, wrap your brain around it. Because God speaks because he wants to be understood. And so he sends Gabriel to this. And so uh, Gabriel says, uh, it says, as soon as you began to pray, a word went out, and uh, I have come to tell you, uh, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand this vision. Right? Gabriel's going to give it, and he says, Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgressions and to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness and to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. So the first thing that Gabriel does is he says, all right, I'm going to give you this vision, but I want you to know why I'm giving you the vision. This is what the vision is about. It's about six very important things. The first thing he says is that there's going to be 70 weeks or 70 sevens, right? 70 sevens. Now, why does it say 70 sevens? Because Hebrew is a very, very, uh, it's, it's a language that is very concrete, right? They, they don't talk about ethereal things. It's very complete. So what's a week? Seven. That's what a week is. And yet, 70 of these. So oftentimes, you'll hear this is called the, the vision of the 70 weeks, um, though literally it's a 77s, because how many days are in a week? Seven. There we go. All right. So 77s are set up, 70 weeks for who? Well, decreed for your people. Those are the Jewish people, right? And your holy city, right? So where is that? Jerusalem. So 70 weeks for the Jews and for Israel to, and, and Jerusalem for what? Well, to finish transgressions. So there's six things that he says it's supposed to do for these people. The first one is to finish transgressions. The second is uh, to uh, atone for wickedness. To bring everlasting righteousness. Three, to seal up the vision, the prophecy. That's to finish the prophecy, complete it. And to anoint the most holy place. 
pretty amazing. Now, we look at the first thing to say weeks, 70 weeks, weeks of what? Right? Are they actually just uh, 70, is it 490 days? Right? Literally that? Well, most think not, uh, So, because is, the temple hadn't been built yet after 70 weeks after this was done. And so most people look at this and say weeks in there. This first, the sevens are figurative in some extent, right? They're, they're figurative a little bit. So they may not be actual days. Maybe they're weeks of years, which is the most common understanding, right? They're seven sets of seven years, or 70 sets of seven years, which is 490 years to the end. Am I losing you yet? There's a lot of numbers. I told you, this is difficult. I have on your thinking cap. Okay, so let's just make it more confusing because we work on a Julian calendar, which is a solar calendar, right? And so we have 365 days in our year. But you know how many days the Jewish people had in their year, which was a lunar calendar? Uh, 360. They lose five days a year, right? So was this according? Was God saying that there's seven sets of seven solar years or seven sets of 70 lunar years, Jewish years? There's a difficulty right there, right? Because they give you a different amount of time. Basically, at the end of this, you'll, the solar years will have, uh, actually, because there's five days extra, it will give us an extra seven years, basically, at the end of it, which I think is kind of cool. So we'll look at both. Um, some people look at this passage and they say, wait, 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 this is a, a, uh, an apocalyptic vision. Everything is symbolic. The, it's not literal time. So there's 70 weeks, seven is, uh, 70 is like seven, which is the number of, of completion, 10 is the, or perfection, 10 is the number of completion, so the number of perfect completion um, is what some scholars will look at. So you might read different books or hear from different people, and there's going to be somebody in one of those three camps. What are the 77s, right? But 77s for six things. Now, again, I'm going to go through that again, because these six things are really important for us to understand how do we interpret this. Because there are six things we're going to look at to say when these 77s end, six things will have happened. And the first one, again, is to finish or to restrain transgression. I love that. Right? To finish it. It's, it's going to be, and the Hebrew there, to finish, actually means to, like, uh, to put it an end to, right? to restrain it. Like sin will lose its power. It will be done, right? The next one is to make an end of sin. And the actual literal, it means to seal it up, right? So it can't, it has no ability to, to continue to grow. It's done. It's stopped, right? So sin will be dealt with. The third one is to, to make a reconciliation for iniquity, right? So there was wrongs that we had against God, and this is going to right them. Now, I want you to know the first three things that it said that we're going to, it's going to do have to do with sin, right? Seventy-sevens to deal with sin, completely end it, seal it up, and pay for it. That's going to be what's happened. But that's not all. The next one is to bring everlasting righteousness. You get that. Daniel was praying repentance, saying, we are not righteous. And God said, in seventy-sevens, Everlasting righteousness is going to be brought. It's going to be available to the people. Isn't that amazing? Sin's going to be ended. Everlasting righteousness is going to be available. That's pretty amazing. The next one is then to seal up the vision and the prophecy, right? To end it. It's going to complete it. 
It means that the prophecies would all be fulfilled. Seventy sevens and all of these prophecies, all of the things that, that the Jews were looking forward to, seventy sevens and they would be complete. It would be done. Nothing left. How cool. And seventy sevens, then the number six, to anoint the most holy place. Now this is the one that gives most of the Bible scholars the biggest divergence. They might be like, what does that mean? There are two main thoughts as to what this could mean. The first one is that it's to anoint the most holy place is to have the, the, uh, the Messiah in the temple, the most holy place. To have the actual one who fulfills what the most holy place is about to actually be there. And we look at Jesus' last week and his time that he spent there in the temple. I think it's pretty amazing. Others, from a, more of the Christian perspective, look back at this and say, this is when the Holy Spirit uh, came upon Jesus uh, after his baptism. Those are the two major views. Of course, there's lots of others as well. But those are the two main ones that we understand. That one's kind of a mystery. So, let's say, how are these 77s going to work? Well, it's broken up into three different sections. There's seven first sevens, and then there's 62 sevens, Right? There's seven weeks, 62 weeks, and then a final week, which gets a little more detail. Now, the funny part is, is that first week, of, uh, first group of sevens and the 62, they just get grouped together, but I don't know why. Gabriel breaks them up. But that's kind of how, so we're going to deal with the prophecy according to this. We've got seven weeks, 62 weeks, and one week at the end, all adding up to, if I did this correctly, 70 weeks. Okay. So, 70 weeks between what? Between when it says there's going to be a prophecy, a proclamation for rebuilding the temple, right, and Jerusalem. So, no one says, from the time a word goes out in verse 25 to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, that's the Messiah, right, the ruler comes, there'll be 70 sevens, or there'll be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Just to make it confusing, that's 69 weeks. Seven plus 62, I did it three times with the calculator, 69. 69 weeks between when the proclamation goes out to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem to when the Messiah shows up. And that's going to be, but still, that's not the full 70 weeks. The Messiah is going to show up at that point in time. Okay, and so we have this uh, 62 weeks. Then what happens is we have here... Um, there's going to be some things that are going to happen. It says here that it would be uh, rebuilt. The temple will actually be rebuilt sometime afterwards. Right? It says uh, in verse uh, 25, it says, It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. So there's going to be a proclamation to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. The Messiah is going to come 69 weeks after that. But sometime in the midst of this, the temple actually will be rebuilt. Because there's a difference between proclaiming something's going to happen and actually having it happen. You ever notice that? That's the whole thing with uh, New Year's resolutions, right? I proclaim, I will not eat sugar. And then, then you do, right? But there's going to be a proclamation, and the temple will actually be rebuilt. That's what it talks about with the trenches. Why? Because you know that they had so many sacrifices in the temple, they built trenches to carry the blood out, right? The next thing it says, there will be streets. What has streets? Cities have streets. Jerusalem will also be rebuilt. It would be proclaimed and it would happen. I think that's really, really cool. But it also says that it will happen in times of trouble. He's already telling Jesus, yeah, you're going to rebuild this, 
But it's not going to be like it was when the first temple was built, when it was time of ease and everybody was around it and celebrating. It's going to be difficult when the second temple is, made, is built. And we read in Scripture that's exactly what happens. The temple, the second temple was built, was completed in 515 B.C. And, and if you want to read about it, it's pretty amazing, like different prophets that were there. And it was difficult. The people around the area, they were not cooperating. Right? When they rebuilt the temple, there was a bureaucracy they had up against. There was local politics that they had to go up against. There were financing issues, all this kind of stuff. It was difficult, but it was done. He says this is exactly what will happen. But after that 62 sevens, now we get into this, this thing that's going to have some stuff will happen that are very interesting. Verse 26, after the 62 sevens, right? So 7 plus 62, 69, right? So after that time, the anointed one, that's the Messiah, will be put to death and will have nothing. Think about that. The anointed one, after this point, the anointed one is going to be executed. And he's going to have nothing. So the uh, Messiah is going to show up. Now we look at Jesus, and what happened? That's the cross. He was executed. Not that he's going to die of a cold, Right? He's going to be executed, put to death. And when he dies, he will have zero earthly possessions, nothing. And what do we see when Jesus died on the cross? The, even the guards, they, they even gambled for his clothes. He had nothing. <coughs> Think about the detail in that. I don't know, like 600 years before it happened. Pretty amazing. Well, 500 years, 490. Okay, so we have this. Not only that, not only the Messiah come and die, but we find that the temple itself will then be destroyed after the Messiah is killed. It says, after the Savior said, the anointed one will be put to death and have nothing, and the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood, war will continue till the end, and the desolations have been decreed. So this temple that would be rebuilt sometime within after the decree was made, which we know exactly when it was rebuilt, would be destroyed again, and so would the city. And, and the people of the ruler, who is that? Is that the Messiah? Some people think so. Um, they would say that it was uh, you know, the followers of the Messiah. I, I think that's kind of a weak interpretation. I think that the Hebrew actually points back, uh, points to a different direction on that. Now the people of the ruler are the, the governing people of the area. And it was prophesied, and guess what? Uh, the people of the ruler would be Rome. And who was the ruler? Well, there was Caesar. But actually, there was a guy that was ahead of the armies of Rome that came down to end what was called the Jewish-Roman War uh, that happened between 66 and 70 AD. And, that's, uh, and so there was this ruler, uh, a general, who was sent down there to, to, to stop this, and his name was Titus. Eventually, also became the leader of Rome. Pretty amazing. And the people of the ruler would come and destroy the city and the temple. And it's exactly what happened. And it said there would be times of war until the end. So 66 to 70, there was times of war. It started in the northern part of, of, of Israel. Actually, there was a, there was a rebellion that uh, the Jewish people for a short time kicked the Romans out. And that's why Titus was sent down there. And there was time of great war and it basically uh, destroyed Israel. It was amazing. There were three uh, Jewish wars, but there was war all the way up to the end until the temple was destroyed. And that's what it said would happen. So, we have that, and so uh, we find that uh, the Messiah, um, 
is going to, verse 7, is going to confirm a covenant then. Uh, the end will come like a flood. War will continue to the end. In verse 7 it says, And he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. Who is the he? Back to the Messiah. For one seven, he is going to confirm a covenant. Now some people think this is the ruler, although again, this is one of those areas where there's differences, and you can read all about it if you want to. I think the Messiah is the best reading of this. We'll confirm a covenant with many for one seven. For, for, so uh, one group of seven years. And in the middle of the seven, now this is where it gets really interesting. He will put an end to sac- the sacrifice and the offering. Well, right here, we're, we're going to be talking, and there's three and a half years, and then there's going to be another three and a half years that, that his, this confirmation is going to be divided up into. Two sets of three and a half years. And in the very middle of it, there's going to be the end of the offering. Right? And so we're talking about why was there an end to offering? Well, because of the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, there was no more need for sacrifice. In fact, the book of Hebrews, which we memorized a portion of this morning, look what it says about this as to the cross, what happened there, why we don't need to have any more offerings. It says, but when this priest, he's talking about Jesus, had offered... For all time, one sacrifice for sins, that's his death on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time, he awaits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Eternal righteousness. The Holy Spirit also testifies about this. For he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Jesus fulfilled the covenant. Halfway through, three and a half years after he begins his ministry, he ends the sacrifice. Think about how cool that is. No more need for sacrifice. What about the second three and a half years? Yeah, I thought it was interesting. I was, I was looking at, but do you know how long the Christian faith grew uh, after Pentecost, before uh, Cornelius was the first Gentile, got included before the gospel really um, started to the rest of the world? About three years. About three and a half years. Isn't that cool? Seven years to confirm a covenant. Now, let's just sit in for a second. This is Daniel who is praying about the first covenant. And God's saying, guess what? That covenant's going to be completed, and there's going to be a new covenant, and the Messiah is going to confirm a new covenant. And it's going to take seven years to confirm that covenant with the people. There's going to be something next, a whole new covenant. The last one will be fulfilled. He's going to be a new covenant. It's going to take seven years, and halfway through, he's going to end the sacrifices. And then, for another three and a half years, that covenant is still going to be confirmed in Israel, the new one. And Jesus said, and he sent the gospel to the Jews first and then to the rest of us. Think how amazing that is. He tells us right at the beginning, a new covenant is coming, and this is exactly how it's going to start. But then we have this weird thing where where he said that the temple is destroyed. What about that? It says says the end will... um, 
Verse 27, he will confirm my covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And the temple, uh, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is, to, uh, that is decreed is poured out on him. Now, that's really confusing because there's a lot of he's, and you're like, who is he? Right? And really, depending on who you point the he to, depends on how you interpret this. Right? Well, I think this goes back again to the, uh, the destroyers, to Rome. And the reason I do is because this one was made easy for us because Jesus chimed in and said, this is how this is interpreted. <laughs> Yay, Jesus. In Matthew 24, 15... Jesus says, so when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken through the prophet Daniel, which we just read about. Isn't that cool? Do you read about something? Jesus just told like, like that. And it says, let the reader understand and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, right? He's telling them, he's warning them. In this passage, he's warning them about the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in AD 70, right? And Jesus said, this applies to that. So the he, well, Jesus applies uh, points this to is to the Romans, right? Because the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. So we would say that he is Rome, or that goes back to Titus. And he says that there's going to be a desolation. It's going to be basically causes, it's going to be a, uh, it's going to cause desolation to be completely destroyed. That area is going to be desolate. You think about desolate, like nobody there. It's like uh, middle of Kansas, right? Just, <laughs> right? That's what it's going to be like. And that happened in AD 70. 87, the, the, the wars that happened between Rome and, and, and the Jews. And uh, there was a bunch of infighting amongst the Jews inside of Jerusalem. They held the city. They could have held it if they really wanted to, but they fought each other and they burned up their own food supplies and, and eventually uh, lit fire to the, to the temple, burned it down. Rome breaches uh, the walls and, and it was, uh, it's been destroyed. In fact, uh, the whole city. You go there now, and there's like with the Western Wall or whatever, just like a little bit left. <laughs> it was destroyed. Happened. Just like God said it would happen. And that would happen, of course, after Jesus had set up, confirmed the covenant. And that's exactly what we find has happened. So in light of Christ, it's easy for us to look back to and say, these are the things that took place, right? This is how this was fulfilled. Right? Daniel didn't have that advantage. Right? He was looking into the future. He was looking at the backs of the heads of all of these prophets and prophecies. Right? He was like, I know this is going to happen. Now we can look back and say, oh, we see that there was a proclamation. And we see that 69 weeks later, the Messiah came. And we see that the Messiah actually uh, set up the new covenant that was his ministry. And about three and a half years in, he died. And he did, he finished the prophecies. And then another three and a half years later, then the gospel goes out to the entire world, just like it said it was going to. And we see in AD 70 that the temple and Jerusalem were destroyed by the people, the ruler, right? And his people who came in and destroyed it. We can see all of these things happened, which is really cool. But the question is, how does this stack up against history? Because that'll tell us what the weeks are, won't it? And that's where it gets crazy. And so we're going to have some fun. There's basically three decrees that starts the clock, right? The whole clock starts 70 weeks starting on the, on the decree. And there are three major decrees that start the clock. So the first one is the decree of Cyrus, Okay, so here's time. Decree of Cyrus took place in uh, 538 B.C. And, uh, and uh, so we add 69 weeks to that. Cyrus, in this decree, this is the most well-known one, he said he was the, the, lead, the Persian leader. This is about the same time, then, if you look on this, very close to when Daniel actually prophesied this. And he says, uh, you know what? Uh, the Babylonians have taken you captive. Now go back to your homeland. 
and rebuild your temple and rebuild Jerusalem, which is really cool, right? And, uh, and so if we add the different kinds of clocks, there is, of course, the lunar Jewish calendar. That's 476 years would be their 69 weeks. That would make this fulfilled at the year 62 B.C., if we go with the Julian calendar, our calendar, and that would be 483 years because it's not 70 weeks, it's 69, uh, we would end with 55 B.C. Now, the problem with this is way early because when did Jesus come? Well, not at 55 B.C. That's why it's B.C., right? So, so most people who hold this are the people who would say uh, it's not a literal 70 years. It's the 7 times 10 the perfect completion, right? The fullness, the perfect fullness. And so it's not an actual time calendar. That's the people that... So, but why... Uh, those that, that hold to this... But why would people hold to that? Um, well, I think it's a, the appeal of this as a starting point is the most, most well-known of the decrees, right? Most people, most Christians, most people know the decree of Cyrus. They know when they said, go back to your homeland, right? It happened around the same time that, that Daniel made this prophecy. So uh, I imagine in Daniel's mind... When he heard this, hey, go back and rebuild, this is what he thought. Makes sense. Um, and so, uh, yeah, most of your symbolic holding, like uh, Young, uh, Magruder, all those kind of philo- uh, uh, um, uh, theologians, those are the ones that kind of hold to this. Now, there's another one called the Decree of Artaxerxes. This happened a little later, 457. Artaxerxes was the next leader who came in, and he tells Ezra to go and to restore the law in its worship. So it wasn't to physically rebuild the temple, but it was to spiritually rebuild the temple and Jerusalem. Restore it back to being a faithful place, because God is not so interested in buildings. He's interested in, in our heart and worship, right? And so when, so when he said, listen, go back. Now there's the walls and everything. Well, actually, there's, there's the... The, the temple is there, but there's no worship. Start it. Well, that happened at uh, 457. And if we add the solar, uh, the lunar years, it ends at 8019. Or if we go to the solar years like we live in, our calendar is 8026. Now, these are really good times, right? Because you'll notice that there's that AD on there, which means that the, the prophets or the Messiah's work would actually happen when he was alive which is handy, right? But uh, let's go back and say, why would we hold to this? You'll see that if we add that seventh year on there, that extra seven years, that ends on our solar calendar, your calendar, at AD 33. That means the work of the Messiah would have happened between AD 30 and AD 33, right? Actually, AD 27. AD 30 is when he would have been executed, when he was 30 years old. And then 33, three years after that, when the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. So it fits our calendar really nicely, which is pretty awesome. But if we say, you know what, I think God was talking to a Jew in Jewish calendar, we are also still pretty good because it ends up, you remember, there's like a seven-year difference, which makes that easy. It ends in 8026, which is really handy for those who believe that the actual nativity took place in, at uh, 7 BC, right? Which a, a lot of uh, modern scholars believe that's around the same time at the, an early uh, nativity, which would then make uh, 8026 the perfect time for the seven years to end. So time-wise, this is a very uh, appealing one. And so a lot of people who hold to a, a literal uh, 70 weeks of years, whether if they go with a Julian calendar or, they, or the, the, um, the Jewish calendar, hold to this. Okay, but there's one more. 
the second degree of Artaxerxes because he likes to decree stuff. So he's like, I got one. I want to do another one. And he did. At 445 BC, uh, he, he makes a decree to Nehemiah and he says, all right, I told you to start worshiping the temple. Now I want you to rebuild the city. There's the walls aren't completely done. They're build, I want you to build that. So uh, 445 BC. We had 69 years down to that. Corner of the Jewish calendar, that ends up at AD 31. And of course, on the uh, Jewish, on the, our calendar, it'd be 8038. Or, yeah. And so, if we add that onto the Jewish, we understand that those who really hold that God did this as according to the Jewish calendar, they love that because it ends the ministry, all of this at 8038. Remember that uh, that's seven years from the start of Jesus' ministry when he was uh, uh, anointed by the Holy Spirit, he was baptized. That's when Jesus' public ministry began. Seven years later, we would have had this. Jesus would have then started his ministry when he was 30, died at 33, 37 or 38 is when the, uh, uh, the gospel goes out to the rest of the world. So, did I lose you all yet? Okay, I really tried to make some drawings that made this a little easier to understand. People who hold to this one love to say that, uh, the hold to say this is uh, probably Jesus was speaking to a Jew in a Jewish calendar, and it holds to a later um, nativity, a nativity that's more close to the traditional date of between 4 B.C. and 0 B.C., right? And uh, he would say, Aaron, which of these do you particularly like? I like the last two. I don't know. I think this one, to me, is just the, the last, the second decree of Artaxerxes, because it's, it wasn't just to rebuild the temple. It was also to build the city. And the temple had started, but we wanted the walls to be done. And it was a decree to actually finish it. I like that. I like the timing of it. And I personally, because I love context, I think that God was talking to a Jewish person about Jewish timing. right? And it fits our... So I like that it would start... Jesus' ministry with his baptism in the, um, and, and the, when the Holy Spirit and, and God, you know, God says, this is my son and well pleased, and it would end the, his ministry halfway through the cross would be right as soon as he was uh, 33. I think that to me is the one I like. You can hold to a different one. It's okay. We'll all be in the kingdom together, and then we'll talk to Jesus and say, which was it? All right. So <clears throat> now I would say arguing, however, over which of those three decrees starts the clock is missing the whole point, however. I want you to understand, like, let's take a step back here and, and realize there was a decree, and there's actually three of them that are possibilities, and the Messiah actually came, right? And it was 69 weeks of years between one decree and, and Jesus. Now, look at all of the history of time. You took all the history of, like, human history, and you line it up, that's a pretty darn good guess. How darn, I mean, it's really close. Maybe even to the very year. That the temple in Jerusalem would be restored with, in difficulty. That actually happened. Remember this? They would be, that's what was prophesied. That not only would there be a decree for the temple to be rebuilt, but it would be restored. And this was Daniel before the temple was even decreed to be rebuilt. And he said it would be. And, and that the Messiah would, would come, and then he would be murdered halfway through starting a new covenant. And then he would die, he would have nothing. Think about all of the prophecies that we have. Not only that, we would see that the temple would be rebuilt, but it would also be destroyed by people after the work of the Messiah. That happened. That's amazing. And in that 70th week, there would be a whole new covenant that would, that would start. And in that, in that seventh week, right, the work of the Messiah would be to do this, to have a new covenant, establish a new covenant. What do we call? We call it the new covenant. That's amazing. <laughs> Prophesied, 
so long ago, and that this new covenant would be divided up into two different sections of how it would be established, the first beforehand, right, and the second afterwards, that he would know that right in the middle, this covenant, this last seven years as it's established, would have two different very unique segments. And at the very middle of those segments, there would be the cross, wherein there would be an end to sacrifice. That's phenomenal. Arguing about the details, I think, misses the point that this passage puts a spotlight on Jesus and says, this is the Messiah. And what is the Messiah, what's the Messiah supposed to do? Seventy weeks until six things would be completed. Well, let's go back to that again and let's just see. We have uh, 77s, it says in verse 24 are decreed for your people, the Jewish people, and the holy city. To do what? Again, what was supposed to happen at this end? To put an end to sin. Think about what Jesus did on the cross. How many sins did he pay for? All of them. He stopped the progress of sin's ability to rot the human soul because he died and paid for them and he took its power away. That's why we sing songs like, oh, death, where's your power, right? How about this? To atone for, or to uh, put an end to sin, not just to, the first one is to finish transgressions, right? Stop it, it's cold in his tracks. The second one is to to put an end to sin, seal it up. The third one is uh, to atone for wickedness. Did Jesus do those? Yeah, that was his ministry. That's what he came to do. And he paid for all sins, and he stopped sin in its tracks, and he stopped its ability to destroy humanity. And it happened right there in the middle of that, that last seven. Not only that, but look at this, to bring everlasting righteousness. Did Jesus do that? Yeah, that's why we say we're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's so why it says in Scripture that none of us can, can boast because none of us are righteous, but that we've received Christ's righteousness. Beyond that, he's given us the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us as we walk in Christ, as we are discipled. Actually eradicates sin in us from the inside out. But that when Christ comes again, and, or when we go home, that we will be remade and be like Christ, not as God, but as righteous clothed in a righteousness that we didn't earn and it's never going to wear off. There's never going to be a time in heaven where God's going to say, oh, your sin's showing. Think about that. Everlasting righteousness. Put yourself, we're comfortable with this because we're Christians. Remember, as Jews, they had to have so many sacrifices, they had to build trenches to carry the blood out. To think about a righteousness that would last forever. One sacrifice, all time, you're good. And Jesus did it. That's why we don't have a temple. That's why we don't have priests. And the last one, to anoint the most holy place. Now that one's a mystery. And a lot of Christians say, what does that mean? Is that Jesus in the temple last week? Is that when he was anointed with the Holy Spirit and when he was baptized? Is that when he went to the Father? I mean, I can't imagine a place more holy than standing before the throne of God and the Messiah being there. I don't know. That one I don't know, but the other five, I can say five out of six isn't bad, and the sixth one, since we're not positive exactly what it is as Christians, 
I can pretty sure that it happened. <laughs> and as Christians, we could hold lots of different understanding of what that is. But I think it's amazing that God, I know that he knew that that last one might be a little bit of a mystery, but I know this too. It's so cool that he makes this the, the pinnacle. There's something amazing that God did in Christ that as Christians, I don't think we fully, fully appreciate yet. But God anointed the most holy. Jesus did it. 70 weeks. 70 weeks of law until we could come to God in grace. 70 weeks that we would have to, to, to worship and, and to sacrifice. Every week, bring in the sacrifice until we could come together in celebration on Sunday. 70 weeks for the Jews to be able to, to prepare the world and to bring the Messiah until the Messiah could come and to bring salvation to all. 70 weeks of an old covenant till the new one would be established. He gave us 70 weeks till Sunday. I think that's pretty awesome. So what do we do with this? I mean, that's a big deal. That's a pretty heavy prophecy. But it's been fulfilled. I think the amazing thing is, is that this prophecy, I think above any other, points right to Jesus and what his ministry would be. And we look at it and we say, there is no other Messiah. It's not as though there could be somebody else that could have done this. Jesus was the only one that did all of those things at just the right time, in just the right way. He even was executed and had nothing. And halfway through, three and a half years into his ministry, think about that. And the gospel says that Jesus fulfilled every one of those things that Gabriel told Daniel that he would. I think that it begins with, it helps us to hold confidently, right, unswervingly to the hope we profess. Don't let anybody tell you there is another way to have everlasting righteousness. God set it up so that we would not miss who Christ is. He is our hope, and he is the way. Just as Jesus said, the way, the truth, and the life. And no one goes to the Father except through him. So how do I apply it? Well, it depends on where you are in your faith. If you take out your connection card, I have a different I have connection. Uh, I've got some ideas there, some next steps. Because I believe that God, it, the discipleship's a, a, a journey, isn't it? It's not like you're like, hey, I'm a Christian. Boom, I'm perfect, right? <laughs> if you are, that, that would be awesome. But it didn't happen that way for me. And uh, so what are some next steps? How do we follow Christ in this? Well, I think the first one maybe is to memorize Hebrews 10.23. This is not just flowery language in Scripture. There are assaults on your faith every day, aren't there? There are times in our own spirit that we try to earn our own righteousness, don't we? Or we think that because I haven't earned my own righteousness, I should be totally ashamed and I shouldn't come to God in the midst of my sin. No, no. Hold unswervingly to the faith that you profess because he who promised is faithful. Even when you're not, Our righteousness is in Christ and in Christ alone. And maybe that's where you begin. Because the enemy is there to try to knock you off into the ditch, right? Either into legalism or grace abuse. That's what he does. But hold unswervingly. Maybe that's where you begin. Or maybe what you want to do this week is read Daniel 9, 20 through 27. You want to read this prophecy. It's not long. But maybe you've been terrified of prophecy in the past because it talks about weeks and numbers and weird things that happen. But this is the promise of God for us, and it points to Jesus. Maybe you want to read that for yourself because there is power in reading and understanding the word of God. And if you've been separated from it for a while, I invite you to come back and to read that passage. Maybe that's where you are. 
Or maybe where you need today is how you apply this, is you accept grace. Jesus came to put an end to sin, to seal it up, to cover it over, to end it, to bring everlasting righteousness. And all he says is you just need to accept it, saved by grace through faith. And maybe the enemy and yourself have been telling you lies for too long that you should feel shame. Well, God, he sealed up sin. And where, where sin has been atoned for, there is no more sacrifice. So stop beating yourself up. Christ was beat up for you and accept grace. And you come to him and you say, you know what? I'm trusting his righteousness, not my own. I'm coming to him in faithfulness. That's why we follow him as Lord, because he can save us first, right? Maybe that's where you need to begin so that way you can walk with God. Accept grace. And that's a hard one. That's like one you have to do every day, right? For a while till it actually begins to, like every time that the enemy's there giving you, it's like, you're not good enough. And your mind is telling you, you're not good enough. And you're like, yeah, you're right. That's the whole point. But I'm loved enough. So accept it. Or maybe the last one you want to do is you want to attend a membership class. Why? Because we are disciples of Jesus, this Messiah, prophesied hundreds of years before he came, centuries and centuries, and did exactly what he claimed to do. And he told us, this Messiah said, this is what I want you to do. Go and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach these new disciples to obey everything I've commanded you. And he gave us a great promise. And remember this, that I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, right? He's going to help us. Well, part of that is being a church family. Discipleship happens in a group, right? Church was God's idea. And maybe you've been with us for a couple months or whatever, and you want to know more about what does it mean to be part of a church and, and like this, and maybe you want to say, you know, I want to be part of this church. Well, I, we have a membership class, so you can ask, can teach you all those things and ask your questions. It's going to be on the 11th. It's going to be after our second service. If you want to be part of that class, then you let us know right there, and I have your name, and give me your, make sure that I have your email address, so that way I can remind you, because it's a couple of weeks off. Maybe there's something else you need to do. Write down your, connect, your commitment right there, or if you've got a prayer request, this God who saved us also listens to our prayers, and he answers them regularly. So let us pray with you. In a minute, we're going to take our offerings. To have our offering, please take these connection cards, put them in the offering basket as they are passed. All right, let's pray for our offering and our commitments, and then I'll have the worship team come out. Father God, thank you for keeping your word. I'm grateful that you are faithful even when we're not. Thank you for making undeniable that Jesus is the Messiah. Lord, that exactly what he said he was going to do, what you said he was going to do, when you said he was going to do it. You are the God of all history. You're not surprised by good things or bad things. You raise up empires and destroy them, but you've built a kingdom that is everlasting. And you brought us everlasting righteousness in Christ. So, Father, I pray that as this church, your disciples, that we would follow you faithfully, that we would trust you, Lord, to do what you promised to do, Father, and that... Uh, Lord, that you would give us peace in that following, knowing that you hold history and the future in your hand. And God, that you are good and that you are doing great things. Help us to be working with you instead of against you, Lord. I pray, Father, for our commitments that we make today. Grow our spirit through them. Lord, work in these. uh, May they be an appeal, Father, to you to enter and to work in our lives. Lord, we pray for our offerings as well. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to invest in this great kingdom. Lord, would you take these gifts, these tithes, these offerings? Would you please expand your kingdom in our hearts and in this church and this community? Because of them, Lord, would you expend grace till everyone in this valley would be able to understand how wonderful Jesus is and how they can respond to him. Lord, we pray all of this in the the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.